1: Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Craig LaHulier, author of the book Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. Good morning, Craig.
2: Good morning, Daryl. How are you?
1: I'm just fine, and I am so excited. We had so much fun last time we talked that I wanted to have you back to tell us the stories about the tomatoes and the heirlooms and the the, the discoveries um, that have been made. So let's start with what defines an heirloom.
2: Great. Well, this has become such an interesting topic because of, um, I would say, overuse of the word heirloom, um, sometimes inappropriately, you know, because one, one can make a little bit of extra money um, doing it. So, you know, maybe it's all fair, but just to, just to make it really clear for people and gardeners who do want to grow true heirlooms, um, if you think about the word heirloom, Maybe in terms of antiques or family family memorabilia, it's typically thought about as something that is very valuable, may have sentimental value, and it's been handed down. Well, if you take that to uh, the gardening realm, an heirloom variety is something that's valued. Maybe it was brought over from another country, or it arose in Grandpa's garden somewhere in Kansas or New Mexico or wherever. So it was thought to be so valuable that seeds were saved and then handed down to family members. Um, so that's one of the th- so just that statement sets a few parameters. It has to be handed down, meaning it it can't be a hybrid. It has to be a variety that has been around long enough to be genetically stable. So that if you save seeds from it, um, let's say you've got a big yellow tomato with potato leaf foliage, and you save seeds and hand it down to a family member, the next year they're going to get a big yellow tomato with potato leaf foliage. The other thing that I tend to use with heirlooms is in, in gardening history, there was a big event that happened in the late 40s, and that the Burpee Seed Company put out a tomato called Big Boy. So World War II had ended, people were growing victory gardens, And all of a sudden, there's this variety that grows big, one-pound red fruits, and it produces lots of them. So Burpee gave it this fancy name, Big Boy, and it just happened to be the very, very first widely grown hybrid variety. So Burpee would actually go into their greenhouses and take the two parents that made Big Boy, do a hand cross, and those seeds in the tomato that developed would be the hybrid seed that would end up in the packet, so there was an extra cost involved. But the reason I use that date, let's say 1948-1949, as a cutoff point for heirlooms, is because after that date, seed companies realized that they could make a lot of these hybrids, and some of them did have advantages, but also uh, the companies then... If people wanted to grow those varieties again, they would have to go back to the company and buy those seed rather than just go in their garden and grow it and save seed and then plant it the next year. So that kind of defines for me an heirloom. It's a, a variety of tomato that's existed pre-late 1940s that's genetically stable. Another word for that is open pollinated, not hybrid, and it's can canned it down. So varieties like, if you go to a restaurant right now, many people say heirloom tomato plate. It contains Sun Gold. It contains Green Zebra. Well, Sun Gold just happens to be a hybrid, so it's not an heirloom. Green Zebra is a nice-looking variety, very tartan flavor that Tom Wagner happened to create in the mid-1980s. That, to me, means it's a recent open-pollinated, or a recent non-hybrid, but not strictly an heirloom. So I'll pause there, Daryl, to see if you wanted to follow up with any questions, but that, that kind of sets, for me, the definition of what an heirloom tomato is.
1: I think that's going to be really helpful for our listeners because there is so much confusion. And you look at some of the catalogs, and they will tell you that it's an heirloom, but then you find out that it, it's not going to reproduce true for you. It's completely right. unstable. And you mentioned potato leaf plants. Mm-hmm. I don't know that everybody that's listening knows the difference in p- in tomato leaves.
2: Sure. So in tomatoes, uh, there's lots of ways to think of a tomato, and plant scientists will think about it as a set of genetic material, and so there's dominant and recessive traits. Just like in human beings, we have blue eyes and brown eyes. In tomato, the leaf shape, the dominant trait, which is in greater than 95% of tomatoes, is the typical toothy leaf. Um, I think anyone who has looked at tomato plants or grown tomatoes, most of the plants in your garden have leaves that have an edge that has indentations like a sword. Now, in a very small percentage of tomatoes, the recessive trait shows, and the leaf margin is very, very smooth. And we've we've taken the term potato leaf for that, because if you've anyone who's grown potatoes will will know that potato foliage has very smooth-edged leaves. So potato leaf in tomatoes doesn't mean better or worse. It just means that plant is showing the recessive leaf trait, and it's quite distinctive-looking. Um, anyone who has grown brandywine. Uh, we'll know what potato leaf foliage looks like, or or Green Giant, or Lilian's Yellow Heirloom. But there's never going to be all that many of it. And um, potato leaf can actually be used if people grow save their own seed. And don't, let's say they have one potato leaf variety in their garden, and lots of the plants around them are regular leaf. If they save seeds from a potato leaf plant and grow them. By looking at the amount of regular leaf plant showing up in that potato leaf seed so let's say you plant 50 seeds and you have one plant come up regular leaf, that is a really good indication of the amount of bee activity you probably have in your garden doing crosses. So it's one out of 50, two out of 100, you have the potential in your garden of maybe about 2% bee crosses. Just by using that. So I know I added a little bit more to that, but um it's kind of the scientist in me, it's it's take what nature gives you and then see if you can use it to find out just a little bit more about what's happening in your garden.
1: For seed savers, that is an excellent excellent thing to know because you and it and it's easy to see even when you set when you're the soon as the true leaves come on the yeah. Seedlings after you've planted them, it's easy to see, and you can rogue out whatever you don't want, or you can you can grow it and see what happens to it, which is one of the things that I like to do, just because it's fun that way. But you know, if you have a if if you have a regular leaf plant in a tray of brandy wines, you know, ooh, ooh that one's not a brandy wine.
2: Yes, and actually, maybe we'll talk about this in a bit because there's, you know, when we're talking about heirlooms, I know we're going to get into some stories soon. There's actually a couple of different types of heirlooms, and there's the ones that are handed down family to family that most people think of as the heirlooms, and we'll talk about a few. But then there's the work that seed companies did in the 1800s that are truly old tomatoes. Um, They are not hybrids because they're reproduced um, true from saved seed, But they're they're commercially produced, so they're what Burpee and Stokes and people were doing prior to the advent of Big Boy and the hybrids. And we've managed to find many of those uh, sitting in the USDA seed repository. And in fact, we probably, if we grow some of those, are more likely to be replicating some of the varieties that our grandparents and great-grandparents may have grown because it's likely that they went to seed catalogs back in the 1800s, early 1900s, and bought varieties um, from the seed catalogs offered back then. Uh, I've collected over the years about 400 seed catalogs, and and it's fascinating going through. And look, oh, they're wonderful, because the pictures are gorgeous. But you really do get this wonderful snapshot of what were granddad's and grandma's gardens looking like way back when. And you can get a good idea of that. Um, Things like Green Zebra and the ones from the 1970s or so, I I tend to call them tomorrow's heirlooms because if people still like some of these varieties that are recently produced maybe 50 or 100 years from now, you know, so our our grandkids and great-grandkids may think of them as heirlooms way back, you know, way into the future.
1: I remember when I was a kid, it was always a ritual come January and February to sit down with the seed catalogs.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yes.
1: And, and you know, it was just like reading a novel. I remember my grandmother would go through, and she was more into flowers than in vegetables, so she did have the charge of the vegetable garden, too. But she would sit down and make lists and then make more lists and make more lists, crossing off what she really could do without, because, you know, seeds were expensive um, Yes. Uh, when you're a small farmer. And uh, so then she would whittle down the list, and she would go through the tomatoes, and the corn was my grandfather's responsibility because that was mostly field corn um, Uh, for the cows. But there was, you know, and and, you know, if you wanted an ear of corn to roast, you just go out to the field after you got your pot of water boiling, and you take, you know, whatever field corn is available then. But the tomatoes and, and flowers, especially, were were a ritual. I don't think there's yeah. any other word you can say other than ritual, and I think a lot of our listeners have a ritual every spring too, when the seed catalogs come in in the gloom of winter, and you sit down and you dog your the pages and you circle things.
2: Many of the seed catalogs I've collected have writing in them, which you know, which is really interesting. Sometimes there is a um, filled out, partially filled out order form, so you actually have the name of the person. And I actually remember when the Burpee C catalog would come into the mail sitting with my dad, and um, I've actually gone back and tried to collect all of the Burpee catalogs from the year I was born, up into the mid-70s, and what's very interesting is looking at some of those from when I was maybe 8, 9, 10 years old, if I looked at those pages now, I can still remember it. And I don't know if you remember this, Daryl, but Burpee had a contest out to try to grow the first truly white marigold. I do. And remember that? And so my very dad yeah. Yes, and my dad was really fascinated with this. So he would send away to Burpee for seeds and he came close, but he never quite got there. But I can now look back in that catalog and find the contest and have warm very warm, endearing memories of sitting with my father and planting the seeds with him and then watching what happened. So I think what we're talking about here is, you know, you can think about tomatoes as a food. You can think about growing tomatoes as a hobby. But in a way, it's about community and stories and family and and life itself and and the joy that you can derive just from doing a hobby with a loved one and its memories that you can take with you the the rest of your life, even long after that person is gone.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a way to remember that person. Um, Maybe even to honor them. I don't know. Um, but, yeah. but yes, you do make a lot of memories. And I always like to try, we don't have kids, but I like to try to get other children involved in growing things. And maybe they will remember, like I remember. You know, that first do, do, do tomato you know, that it, you grow yeah. and on a warm day. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to take a little break right now, but... When we come back, Craig, you mentioned the USDA, and I'd like to know how USDA got involved in all of this. And, I would, right. of course, we have to talk about saving seeds and storytelling about that. Um, and, Craig, do you, have a, do you have a favorite tomato that you want to talk about?
2: Um, there's a couple maybe to talk about that I'd love to discuss. Uh, Anna Russian, which is, one of the, or, which is a, a family heirloom that came to me with a name, um, Cherokee Purple, which is one that came to me with no name, okay, and then we'll maybe Ferris Wheel, them. Ferris Wheel, which is a variety that I found from hunting through the the USDA collection. So maybe just a few that have um,
1: okay. we'll talk typical, about, Good. We'll talk about those right after this
3: break. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. And make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Quick Stakes. That's Q U I K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes. Q U I K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now.
1: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Darrell Pullis, and my guest today is the author of Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. And right before the break, we were talking about some of the things that we're going to be talking about, but I'd like to start with, um, you mentioned Anna Rusher, and tell us the story behind that.
2: So, Sure. Um, one of my favorites, actually, in, in, in my book, is the uh, Xerox, or reproduction. Actually, it's a reproduction, a picture of the original letter that came with the seed, along with uh, many other letters that people sent me. So back in 1990, which is when I was really just starting to um, turn from hybrid into primarily heirloom growing, I had uh, joined a seed swap from a great gardening magazine back at the time called National Gardening Association, also known as Gardens for All. And I, I must have put a little blurb in saying, you know, I'm an heirloom tomato enthusiast. And I would love to trade seeds with people that, set, that have family heirlooms. Now, I had two responses that really stuck out that year. I received in the mail, and on the most beautiful onion skin paper, a letter from a woman named Brenda helenius who lived in Corvallis, Oregon. And there was a small packet of maybe five seeds. And she said, here's a tomato called Anna Russian that was given to my grandfather, Kenneth Wilcox, from a Russian immigrant. His family sent him the seeds from Russia several years ago. And and this repeats a theme of how I ended up building up my collection with some of my very favorite varieties back then. Uh, I grew the seed and got this wispy-looking plant. It, it as, as I learned in years after, a lot of the varieties that had the strong heart shape just have miserable-looking plants. They're, they're kind of droopy and tiny foliage, and it just happens that's a genetic trait, that when you have heart-shaped tomatoes, there's a linkage on the gene to wispy-looking foliage. But the tomatoes were heart-shaped and pink. They came in at about 8 or nine, ten ounces, and they were just so delicious. And so I'm thinking, wow, it's, uh, that note led to Brenda sending me this seed. Uh, about a week later... I got another letter in the mail, and it said, uh, Dear Mr. LaHoulier, here are some seeds of a purple tomato that the Cherokee Indians gave my neighbors about 100 years ago. Hope you like it. So the man who sent me those seeds was, was John D. Green. He liked to be called J.D., lived in Sevierville, Tennessee. And when, I, when he used the word purple, I thought, well, it's going to be a pink tomato, because if you look in seed catalogs at the turn of the century, they were quite, a, at the turn of the 18th to nineteen hundred century, were quite a, there were some pink tomatoes being offered, but they were also, also known as purples. Um, people looked at pink tomatoes back then and thought, well, those are kind of purpley looking. So I grew this tomato, and lo and behold, it had this dark coloration. It, it was the first of the so-called black tomatoes that I had seen. So I, I loved it. It was gorgeous. I, I, we, my wife and I tasted it. It was about a pound, and we're like, this thing is really something. And it was this dark, dusky rose, and when you cut it open, it had green gel around the seeds, and the interior was a dark, dark crimson. So I sent seeds to my friend. First, I thought, well, I can't, I can't leave this poor tomato without a name. And given the story that J.D. related to me in the letter, I said, well, we'll call this Cherokee Purple, and I sent it to my friend, Jeff McCormick, who... Owned Southern Exposure Seed Exchange at the time, a very fine seed company in Virginia. So Jeff grew it, and I got a letter, and he said, "Well, Craig, this tomato tastes really good, but I'm afraid it looks a bit like a bad leg bruise. I'm not sure <laughs> it's going to. I'm not sure it's going to catch on. But I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll list it in my catalog, and we'll see what happens." And it. Um, I guess it's an understatement to say Cherokee Purple uh, kind of caught on. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> I, I think that if, if any of our listeners have grown an heirloom tomato, it's either Brandywine or Cherokee Purple. I think. Yeah, and,
2: and it is. it now I, I have to say it. It's a surreal, humbling, and almost uh, odd experience when you walk through a farmer's market and you see stalls with a tomato that. You, you named, and you just had this serendipitous decision to send it out. So I, I have talked to J.D. a few times years ago, and he was tickled pink, tickled purple. He was tickled that I named the tomato and that it was becoming popular. Uh, a, very, a very humble, nice man, and sadly I've lost touch with him over the last ten years ago. So you know, I am hoping that Epic Tomatoes coming out and Cherokee Purple being in there and even his letter being in the book that he resurfaces and somehow we can be in contact again. Um, so just a couple of stories about an heirloom that came to me with a name that I loved and was able to popularize. And a, a, a tomato that came to me a wonderful, with no name that I slapped a name on and, and got to search by. Do you,
1: do you feel like a proud papa?
2: Oh, I. you know what I feel like as a very fortunate person? to be in the right place at the right time and be in the right decision. But I also get a sense that all of us here um, in life seem to get chosen to do particular things, and it's almost fate, and I'm not tr- much of a choice. it. I just think some things some things are just kind of meant to be in a strange sort of way, and I don't mean to be, you know, talking eerie or ooh here, but it's. Um, I, know, I think fate plays a lot of why we do the things we do, who we meet, so, and uh, maybe what's more individual is do we have the uh, impetus and wherewithal to kind of take the lead and be bold and go forward with an idea.
1: That's that's a good philosophy. I like that. Um, tell, tell us some other stories. There are, there are so many wonderful tomatoes out there. Tell me some about you, We mentioned Anna Russian. How about Lily and sure. Yellow? Where did that come
2: from? So Lillian's Yellow came along with another one called Lillian's Red Kansas Paste, and I, bo- I grew both of those in the early 90s as well. And uh, they came about, um, a fellow seed saver who, who is no longer with us, Robert Richardson, and judging from his letters, just a really nice man. In 1988, he, he sent me a letter with um, two types of seed, and they were called uh, Lillian's Yellow One and Lillian's Red two and he said that uh lillian bruce in tennessee had sent these seeds to him robert um she picked them up uh her sons went to uh i think they must have sold antiques at state fairs and such and they would they would either gather tomatoes or tomato seed and bring them to lillian and she grew them and she shared them with robert so they really had no name yet and i grew them both and uh i have to say even though lillian's red is a, is a delicious tomato it's it looks a bit like aroma. It's not paste tomato, even though Lillian called it Lillian's red Kansas paste. It's it's more, It tastes like the best red beef steak you've ever had, but in this kind of elongated shape, and it produces like crazy. But Lillian's yellow is the one that, that blew me away, because up until then I had tried quite a few yellows, and I found them just as a class to be a little bit milder and sweeter in flavor than I like. Um, I, I like the tomato that attacks my taste buds. So, Lillian's Yellow, I planted the seed. The plant looked like a jack and the bean plant. Enormous, dark, bluish-green potato leaf foliage. Quite late, I was growing this in Pennsylvania for the first time, and the tomatoes are one, two-and-a-half pounds smooth, oblate, meaning they're fatter than they are tall, but a creamy yellow with a pale, lustrous, pearly pink blush on the bottom you slice it open, and you say, where are the seeds? It's almost like a solid slab of bright yellow uh, tomato meat. And so you think, well, looking at this, I bet you this tomato is going to be kind of dry and tasteless. You take a bite, it melts in your mouth, it's creamy, it's succulent, it's juicy, but it has the, the flavor of the very best red, purple, you name it, color tomato I have ever had. So it immediately became a favorite, and... Uh, the first person I shared this one was Carolyn Mayo, and she also went gaga over it. And so we, we got it to Linda Sapp and made sure it was uh, listed in Tomato Grower Supply Catalog. Um, so it's, it's just wonderful. Um, I don't know. I, I can't speak highly enough about Lillian's Yellow Heirloom as being, without a doubt, the best yellow tomato I've ever eaten and probably amongst the best five tomatoes overall I've ever eaten. We're talking maybe 1,500, 2,000 varieties here.
1: That is amazing. Now, Craig, tell me about. You mentioned that there's almost no seeds, which means no gel essentially. Um, Right. I thought all most of the flavor in the tomato was in the gel.
2: Not at all. Um, Actually, the 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 tomato is uh, the tomatoes' flavors are spread throughout the gel and the seeds, and I believe that it could be that tomatoes that have a lot of gel will have a particular type of tomato tomato flavor, but Through all of my tastings, I I think it's all a matter of the complex flavor genetics in that some tomatoes are just coated for intense flavor throughout the flesh. Some of them are encoded for a lot of the flavor being around the seeds and the gel. Um, But the more tomatoes you grow, the more you realize that that generalizations begin to fail, and it really becomes about – it's kind of like if you went into a room and you talk to hundred people, each one of those hundred people would have a different personality. Even though some of them would be similar. If you get to know them well enough they'd all be distinctive. I found the same thing with tomatoes and that if I were to if I were to be able to grow all of the fifteen hundred or two thousand varieties of tomatoes and have the wherewithal and the stomach to be able to eat that many <laughs> maybe with you know, with a with a big bottle of milk of magnesia or pepto-bismol and, you know, lots of treatment for all of the canker sores that would arise. Um, I'd probably find that each one of them did have a definite personality. Now, not every and I'm not a super taster, meaning, you know, some people have these super taste buds where they can pick out zillions of flavor characteristics. Um, my taste buds are just normal. I think maybe I'm more of a foodie in in that when I, when I taste wine or beer or dark chocolate or go to a restaurant, I take time, I'm one of those weird people that take time in life to really think about what I'm tasting and not rush through a meal, not rush through a tomato tasting, but uh, I don't just eat to put energy into my body. I eat to enjoy the sensation and flavors of everything I'm eating, and I think that puts you in a really good shape to appreciate the different nuances of different tomatoes.
1: That's interesting I I made the generalization myself of the you know well the, the flavor being in the gel because that's been my experience um, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. now that you mention it I'm thinking of a particular hybrid that I've been growing because it does well here even when everything mm-hmm. else fails and it has almost no gel at all and it's mm-hmm. pretty darn flavorful for a for a grape tomato yes. a kind of well, an elongated, you,
2: you also you you also need to try Green Giant, and uh, Green Giant is a variety that was sent to me from Germany that I believe was derived from Lillian Yellow, and it has the same uh, relative lack of seeds to flesh, and that, that may be the number one or number two flavor tomato I've ever had. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to do a little seed sharing, Darrell, and uh, see, you know, maybe we can end up at a tomato tasting together someday and have some fun comparing notes.
1: But that would be a whole lot of fun. Um, Craig, you, all right, now now that you've got everybody wound up, we have about 50 seconds before the break. You said Green Giant, Lillian's Yellow. What are your other f- other in the top 5?
2: So, it, I would say a well-grown brandywine, meaning brandywine is a is a is a persnickety tomato. So it's got to be it's going to trace to the foot of source through Ben Quisenberry, Sungold, which is a little hybrid cherry tomato, and maybe maybe Lucky Cross, which is um Well, I need to mention Cherokee Purple. Lucky Cross, which is something that I created out of Brandywine, out of one of those regular leaf seedlings that we talked about at the very beginning of
3: the show.
1: That sounds absolutely fascinating. We've got so much to talk about. We've got to take a little break right here, but we will be back right after this.
3: Quick Stakes. That's...
1: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Darrell Pullis, and today I'm talking to Greg Lahulier, who is the author of Epic Tomatoes How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. And right before the break, you told us about your favorite, and I'm intrigued. intrigued. Tell me about Lucky Cross.
2: So, Lucky Cross, back in, um, oh, I think it was about 2003, um, I was growing out some. No, it's actually back in, in the late 1990s, I was growing out. Brandywine, and I noticed a regular leaf seedling. Uh, we talked about this at the beginning of the show, so I plucked it out, realizing it was a cross, or or, or it could have been a seed mix, up, a seed mix up, or a little seed that got stuck under my fingernail. But I grew it anyway. So I got this. You know, Brandywine is a potato leaf plant with big pink tomatoes. I got big tomatoes that were pink with jagged gold stripes, something something I had never seen before. So oh. so I knew I had a hybrid from the, well, I went back to my garden map, and Brandywine that year was growing next to an experimental striped variety. So I thought, oh, this is really interesting. Uh, we're going to have all kinds of stuff here, because the experimental striped variety was created from one of the big yellow-red swirled bicolors. So I grew out a whole bunch. I got potato leaf. I got re- regular leaf. But I got one potato leaf variety, that had big yellow tomatoes with red stripes that tasted like a brandy wine. And I thought, this is hmm. it. If I, So I, there's a friend named Larry Bowes, who's a professor at Duke, and lives near me. He and I did this little project together, and for several years we grew out a bunch. We ended up stabilizing two potato leaf varieties. One of them is about a round four-ounce yellow-red with the brandy wine flavor that we call Little Lucky. And the big one, the one one-and-a-half-pounder, yellow with red flavor of brandy wine we called Bucky Cross. And I just, it, it was a no-brainer. I was lucky that the bees made the cross and made this wonderful brandywine flavored tomato, but in that, that unique color of the big yellow beefsteak with the red swirls. So that's become a favorite tomato. And even though I love all of the other yellow-red ones, like Regina's Yellow and Ruby Gold, they all taste a little bland to me but Lucky Cross has that huge impact flavor. So it's not an heirloom. It's a stable, open-pollinated variety, but if people still like it in 50 or 100 years, we'll probably be able to call it an heirloom.
1: Now, where can people get seeds for that? Because this is the first I've ever heard of Lucky Cross.
2: Uh, Lucky Cross, I believe, tomato growers supply sells it, um, and Victory Seeds are two at least. uh, I believe Tomato Fest. Sells it, so it's getting out there slowly. Um, And the other, you know, it it takes time sometimes for, because there's only so many spaces and a lot of seed companies, they're a little bit careful on what they they choose to offer. So the tomato companies that offer the widest variety of heirloom seeds will frequently be the the ones. Or, like I know Mike Dunton very well at Victory Seeds, so often I'll have a tomato and send it to Mike and. He'll grow it and like it and get it in the seed catalog the next year. Uh, if people do have questions on where to find this or that variety, um, I'm pretty, I have some pretty good information on that and they can just email me at nctomatoman at gmail.com and I can help them find things if, if they're looking for certain varieties.
1: It's a good thing to know because so many, so often, these things are kind of hard to find. And I know when you know when people hear this wonderful about this wonderful (laughs) tomato, they're all going to want it. So I figured I'd better ask. Now we we need to talk about seed saving. I know you've got lots more stories, but since we mentioned that you saved seeds and grew it out, tell people how to do that.
2: Well, I find seed saving easy, fun, and rewarding. and just a little bit of work, but really it's, it's quite an interesting process. Uh, so, let's, so the first thing is people will say, well, I have a lot of different tomatoes in my garden. Won't I have cross-seed if I save seed? And my answer to that is, number one, if you have two varieties separated widely, does that prevent the bees from making that quick little cross-pattern, you know, so, so if my tomatoes are 100 feet apart, it may take me a while to get from one to the other, but a bee can cover that very quickly. So, yes, it helps, but it doesn't guarantee. However, it's really about the bees, because what happens is a tomato flower opens, and if the process works right, it's pollinated as it's open. So even if the bees visit, it will be fine. And if you have no bees visiting your garden early on in the season, then you don't really have to worry about it. So I tend to save, uh, I'll, go, I'll look at my plants, and the first three or four tomatoes off a plant, I'll use those as my seed saving, because typically the plants are short, the flowers are kind of embedded inside, and the bees have other things to do, so they haven't visited flowers yet. And I have greater than 99% seed purity. So it's all about knowing your bee pattern. But just once you get a, a tomato that's edible-shaped, you, you don't want to wait till it's overripe. Just take it in the house and get yourself a cup. Uh, you can use styrofoam. You can use Dixie cups. I like to use clear plastic so I can see what's going on, the, the little wine cups they use. Get a Sharpie and write the name of the tomato in the cup. Cut it in half. Uh, put your cup over the sink and just squeeze. And use your fingers to, to nudge all of the gel and the seeds into the cup. Um, so the scientific term is get the group into the cup. where a group is a mixture of the seeds and the flesh. And um, you add a little bit of water, just a little water if you need. You want that to swirl a little bit. And then I bring those cups into into my garage. You don't want to do this indoors because it smells. Um, Fermenting tomato pulp does not smell good. I use a garage table. You could do it outdoors in the shade. I put a paper towel over the cups and just lightly weigh it down. So it's porous, it lets air in and out, but it keeps the flies from going in and laying eggs. The flies will love the smell of the tomato flesh. So you want them out.
1: Oh, yes. And then you get all these uh, horrible,
2: little I don't to Yes, yes. Yeah. And we won't talk about the maggot. But if that doesn't happen, what happens is over two or three or four days, fermentation starts occurring naturally, and you'll get a white layer forming over the surface, and that's good. Um, what's happening, think about this. A tomato is 90 to 95% water. So when you cut up at a tomato, why isn't it filled with little tomato plants? Why aren't they germinating? That's because nature has painted a germination hither onto each seed and enclosed it in that slippery gel. So the very reason that when you drop a tomato seed you can't pick it up is the very thing that prevents that tomato from germinating inside the tomato. However, once you ferment it for three days and that mold starts forming, the gel breaks down. The germination inhibitor rinses off the seed, and if you wait longer than three, four, or five days, depending on the temperature, you could have little tomato seedlings germinating in your cup, and you'll be done for. So just as soon as you see that mold, you should be good. Um, Bring it in the house when your spouse is doing something or a significant (laughs) other is doing something else. I tend to fill all the cups up with water and stir them. Give them a little while. The good seeds will settle. All the yucky goop, here's another technical term, floats to the surface. I decant off the goop and then add a little more water and stir again and do that a few times till you've got really nothing now but clear liquid on the top and seeds on the bottom. Pour it through a sieve. Take a spoon and um, run them. just run them around a little to get the excess water off. Then I spread them on unglazed paper plates, and I'm pretty brave. I'll... I'll label four quadrants at 12, 3, 6, and 9 o'clock, draw a little circle, oh, wow. and spread the seeds, and then put them on my dining room table and let them air dry for one or two weeks. Um, now, if you have pets and stuff, and they're interested in such things, you they can really do terrible things by tipping plates over and all of your effort is for naught. But once those seeds are dry, and it only takes air drying for a week or two, even stored in manila, little coin envelopes, or plastic caps, tomato seeds actually last, even at room temperature. Just, you know, if you sitting in an office where mine are up to 14 years with very little drop-off in germination. And, and people don't often realize that about tomato seeds. They'll, they'll buy seeds, you know, you get 30 seeds and they're quite expensive, and they'll say, oh, I have to go out and buy new seeds next year. Whereas tomato seeds will hold their germination for 10, 12, 14 years. And then after that, they drop off like a rock. Now, if you use silica gel and dry those seeds down really, really well, because moisture is what's the enemy of, of seeds, you can store them then in, a, in an airtight container in your freezer, and they'll probably last 20, 30, 40, 50 years if need be. Um, so there are ways to get good longevity out of your out of your uh, safe tomato seed. Um, lots of information about that on the Internet. But, you know, I tend to just go the simple route, Keep the, make sure I have a grow-out sequence that keeps them refreshed before they hit the 10-year mark.
1: Yeah, Craig, when, when you find an old packet of seeds in a drawer, which I think most of our listeners have done once in a while, yeah. Um, how do you revive it?
2: Ah, very good question. And uh, that is a topic I would love to do a little more investigation on. Um there are various techniques I've heard, from soaking them in a little bit of dilute tea to soaking them in a little dilute uh, blue stuff, as we'll call it, you know, the uh, miracle Grove all-purpose mm-hmm. water-soluble fertilizer. Other people have said uh, soaking them in potassium uh, nitrate or a little bit of gibberellic acid to even uh, a method that Jeff McCormick at Southern Exposure suggested works for older pepper seed he found, which is microwaving them on high for 10 seconds or so. Wow.
1: Um, I, I know. I think it's, it would kill it.
2: You would think it would kill it, but I've actually done it, and it can work. Now, what I've not done is the true study to find out if all of these in seed enhancements work. And often with old seed, um, some patience is needed. Um, whereas fresh seed may germinate in three or four days, sometimes it takes up to a month for old seed to germinate, and often if very old seed germinates, you get a lot of blind seedlings where you just get the two cotyledon leaves and nothing pops out of the middle. Um, Mule plants are just cotyledons only where they may never, ever develop into a tomato plant. So I think any of those methods are worth trying, maybe um, getting a paper towel and soaking it with, uh, you know, put a tea bag on it and then put the seed on it and fold it over and let it sit in warm conditions for a couple of weeks or so because once you can see it germinating on a paper towel you can then plant it in your potting mix and see if it works out just some ideas for you though
1: that's i think i've tried most oh i haven't tried the microwaving it but i've tried the blue stuff and i've i've tried the saltpeter routine and yep. and some of the other, i haven't tried the tea bag though and i've got yeah. some old seeds like a lot of people do uh, you know you as you mentioned you get 30 seeds in a packet and then you don't yeah. plant them all the first year of course most most of the time and then yeah. the next th- year you th- want to try something else cuz you've looked at that seed catalog and it's intrigued yes. you and and so it goes, or somebody will send you some seeds that they've, you know, that they've had for years and years.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it calls for some kind of a, and this is where I need to put my science hat and just bite the bullet and do the study, because I, I think it would be good to be done in a very um, organized fashion with controlled studies just to see if any of these methods truly do um, work to some degree, because the question we're trying to answer really is do do tomato cheese, tomato seeds enter some sort of a dormancy that can be broken, or do they truly hit a point where the genetic material is, you know, for all intents and purposes, dead. There's nothing that can be done to to revive them. And I think uh, an organized type of a study with these different solutions and techniques would it would shed some light on it, and it's something I've had on my list to do for a long time, but uh, I've not quite gotten to yet.
1: Okay, well, we're going to have to take a little break right now, but when we come back, I want to talk about some unusual places where you've gotten some seeds. We'll be right back after
3: this. Quick Stakes, that's... QUICK stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q U I K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now.
0: The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the US Senate on all but one US Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Craig LaHoullier, the author of Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. And Craig, you've had some interesting experiences getting seeds, and some people may not know about the USDA and what they do.
2: Right. So um, years ago, I had caught wind of the fact that um, there's a the um, United States Department of Agriculture has been storing seeds at seed banks throughout the country for some years, and it is actually reachable through a program called GRIN, G-R-I-N. And you can, you can Google USDA GRIN and find that easily on the Internet, and you can actually search a database there, and you can actually request free germplasm. But at the time, um, when I discovered this, I was very excited, because this is when I first started. I had always been interested in family family heirlooms, and then I got it in my head that I wanted to start finding varieties that my grandparents and great-grandparents may have grown, which meant collection of the seed catalogs. So by comparing lists I was making from seed catalogs to what was available in organizations like the Seed Savers Exchange, I found that there were some really <clears throat> Excuse me, there were some really key missing varieties that I was looking for. I remember one time I was in New Hampshire and uh, went into an antique shop and found a seed catalog from the Livingston Seed Company that had a variety called Magnus on the cover. And the catalog was from 1900. And it showed this pink tomato with potato leaf foliage. So I was on a mission to find Magnus, thinking how fascinating it would be, that um, it hadn't been grown for decades. And it turns out that when I did a search in the GRIN database under Livingston's Magnus, they had seeds. So I requested a sample. In fact, over the years between 1994 and 1997, I think I requested about 200 or 250 samples based on my run-through seed catalogs and the varieties they had that they have been keeping. So the reason I want to tell the Magnus story is that it involves a good tomato friend of mine, Carolyn Mayo. So I got 100 seeds, and they said the germination is very, very low on the label. So I sent Carolyn 50, and I had 50. I got one seed to germinate, and it was regular leaf, so it wasn't the right thing. Carolyn got two seedlings to germinate, and they were both potato leaf. So she grew one. See, I I know. So Carolyn grew one, but she also knew how much it meant to me to find this variety Magnus, and she packed up the seedling using a really careful technique that she came up with and sent me the seedling, and I grew Magnus in my garden that year. And we both got the potato leaf plant with the medium-sized round pink tomatoes that were delicious, and we saved seed and we offered it in the Seed cattle, and the Seed Savers Exchange catalog and sent it to Victory Seeds. So between the two of us, we managed to rescue Magnus from oblivion just from Carolyn's two germination successes, from all of that seed that we got from the USDA. It was just kind of an interesting story.
1: I will have to talk to her about how she got it to grow. Now, how, you said these seeds were, were close to 100 years old?
2: Well, I, I think that, they were collecting a lot of these seeds from the 1930s and 1940s. And it looked like what the USDA did at the time was decide to make a sweep of a lot of the seed companies and pull in what was being sold at the time. And sometimes you request a variety that just has a funny name and it ends up being relevant. So one day I was looking through the GRIN database, and you can you can do it by number. And there was a series of numbers that started with two nine, and they were five digit numbers, but they all seemed to be the varieties that came into the, the organization around the same time. And they came upon this variety, Ferris Wheel. I loved the name, a tomato called Ferris Wheel, Salzer Seed Company, 1941. So I asked for it, and I, I sat on it for a few years, but then I decided to grow it. And then that same year, I got a Salzer Seed catalog from 1907. And I flip through it, and lo and behold, there's Ferris wheel. And I actually have a scan of the uh, catalog page in the book, um, and it is it shows a Ferris wheel with this tomato that appears to be, it has the Ferris wheel superimposed inside of the tomato, this huge tomato. This, you know, you know how seed catalogs will embellish. Well, Ferris wheel was embellished, but it turns out that this variety traces back to sometime between 19. 19- 1894 and 1897 and it was one of the very first large pink tomatoes and it was just serendipity that I liked the name and asked for it but it turns out to be a very historic variety anyone who's grown German Johnson or Ponderosa Ferris wheel is ten times more delicious and so it has become a staple in my garden Uh, I sent it to Victory Seeds and they offer it in their catalog now so it was a chance to revive a tomato that our great-grandparents did very well with growth that hadn't been available in commerce probably since the 1940s, and that just excited me. So I went on this cause, and I think over the years I've probably been responsible for getting, I don't know, three, four, five dozen tomatoes back into sea catalogs that had just become obsolete because of the predominance of hybrids. In in how seed companies have been stressing development and sales of hybrids, so um, little Johnny Appleseed there. But um, it, but it kind of walk, you know. Makes me feel good to bring the past back. And you know, one one quick story. Um, I was at the farmers market when I first started selling seedlings in the late '90s, and this elderly man, very elderly man, came up, and he was just looking at my tags, and he said, uh, very southern accent, Winslow you're growing Winsel, And this is a tomato, W-I-N-S-A-L-L, that the Ponderos, that the, um, sorry, the Hendricks Seed Company put out in 1924. And he said, I haven't seen winsel in, uh, in 50 years. My great-granddaddy used to grow it, and I thought it was gone for good. And there were tears in his eyes as he was telling me this story. And so I gave him some plants, and he came back and got plants for me the next two years after that. And then I didn't see him, but I reunited him with a tomato from his youth that he thought was gone forever. And that, to me, defined very well why I, why I do what I do and where I derive the pleasure from it. It's, it's reuniting people with pieces of their past or something delicious. And it, it's, it's just fun.
1: That's amazing. Now, where did you get Winsall?
2: I got, it uh, Winsall it from the, I got it from the USDA, and I also got it from a seed saver. And I've grown both samples. I actually also got it from someone who lived in the western part of North Carolina, where it had been grown in their family for years and years. So I got it from three different sources, and I grew them all out, and uh, they looked identically, but it was a tomato that it thought that had been thought to be lost for for decades and decades.
1: I'm so glad that you were able to get that tomato back to that old man. I just I know that kind of story just warms my heart. And when you think about the, how powerful taste is to a person in bringing back memories, mm-hmm. taste and the sound of music, familiar music, even yeah. very, very elderly people, people with Alzheimer's, it, it takes them back, and then it can bring yeah. them forward again, too. So that is just absolutely a cool thing. Now, we've got about five minutes now. Let me, let's me let talk about where people can get your book
2: mm-hmm.
1: and how they can uh, find you.
2: Sure. Um, books should be available pretty much everywhere now. Um, I know it's at all of the e-tailers. I've checked around, and it's shown up at a lot of the brick-and-mortar stores. And, uh, and I know it should be at... Uh, You know, your favorite book, even small independent bookstore where you live. And if you don't find Epic Tomatoes, um, you can ask for it and they'll order it. Um, And I'll be out and about uh, talking about it a lot. Uh, You know, I'll be in Decatur, Georgia next week and I'll be out at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show in uh, mid-February and speaking at a bookstore and a garden center there. Uh, if people want to see um, where I'm going to be, they can go to my website, which is just com, and scroll down, and I have uh, my schedule of events. And I would love to run into anyone who wants to just talk tomatoes, and, you know, here and there I'm going to have lots of samples of seed with me, and at some events I may have seedlings with me. And uh, I, what excites me about gardening is being around other gardeners, because, um, I learn just as much from everybody I talk to as I can impart on them. We all gardeners are learning all the time, and none of us know nearly even a fraction of everything there is to know about this. So it's uh, it's the interchange. Even you know our chats, Daryl, just in these uh, in these uh, sequences, uh, I've learned a lot from you. That, that's what it's all about.
1: I love that you love learning about things like that, too, because gardening to me is the one thing that you can do for your entire life and never learn everything.
2: No, no, no. Well, what I tell people, it's kind of a – so they've asked me to write a book on tomatoes, and I have had some of the most spectacular gardening failures you have ever seen. There there literally are no guarantees, and and the one thing that keeps gardeners gardening – is the optimism of the fact that next year I can apply what I learned this year differently. Um, and that's why I admire farmers so much. Well, when I go to a farmer's market and see the produce, I always tell people, you know, never, never discuss the price because you don't know the work that went into bringing that produce to the table. It, it's Mother Nature can be cruel, so um, we just owe them a great debt of gratitude and to pay whatever they think their produce is worth because it's worth ten times more than that when when we buy it and eat it
1: oh yeah especially from people that are growing it with love instead of just the factory farms and even the factory farms there are an awful lot of people out there doing an awful lot of hand labor just really stoop labor so but but I, I think if you garden you know that it kind of because you're out there digging the holes, you're planting, yes. you're cussing when the rabbits come in and nibble everything down, or the woodchuck or whatever <laughs> critter it is in your garden, or when a when a cat gets in there and scratches up your whole seed bed, um, yes. or when they you know or when they dump a seed that tray of seedlings all over the floor. Can you yep. tell I've been gardening for a while? Um, I've so, had
2: I've, I've had every one of those things happen, Daryl. Every single one of those things you mentioned, I've experienced. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so so I think we do need to appre- we need to appreciate the farmers. And Craig, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the way that you and Carolyn and some of the other folks that are tomato lovers have worked so hard to bring some tomatoes back to get them out there, get the interest out there. I think Carolyn's was one of the very first books on heirloom tomatoes. Um, yeah, and in the 1990s, and even before that, you guys were writing off the vine. Uh, Yep, which was was a (laughs) newsletter. Yeah, and and you know what? I found a copy, a couple of copies of off the vine that the cat dislodged from a pile of my Olympic memorabilia from when I was a volunteer when the Olympics were here in Atlanta. Uh, We've got. We have to wrap it up now. I will um, put the links up on the page for you, and when we we do, Craig, we just have to get you back again. There are just so many things to talk about tomatoes, and it's so much fun to talk and and spread the stories around. Anyway, that's all the time we have to, for today, but I wanted to remind you, I'll put this up on our Facebook page. If you have a question, you can leave it there on Facebook or at my website, which is mrsgreenthumb.com, and... We'll be back talking more tomatoes, more gardening, and other things, vegetable, next week. I hope you'll join us.
0: This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.